touch them all, Joe. <laughs> Andy Crosby, the golden goal. Today, we're joined by Mark LeBlanc. To start, let's just get something out of the way. We're both named Mark. This is the first time that I've hosted someone with the same name. Mark and I have known each other for many, many years, and we have nicknames that we go by. So these nicknames we're going to use probably throughout throughout the episode. We might use our, our real names too, but just so you know who we're talking about, Mark LeBlanc is MLB and my nickname, and this is the first time we're actually breaking this on this episode, breaking this news. My nickname is Slivs. There you go. A little more about me. So Mark and I had the privilege, or MLB and I had the privilege of working closely together for five plus years at CTV Olympics. And since that time, he's been the director of editorial planning and research at Rogers Sportsnet, which is actually coming up on just about eight years. Unbelievable how time has flown, MLB. Welcome to the Backstage Project podcast. So Libs, thank you. Uh, and thanks for that introduction. And yeah, it's, it's amazing how time flies, uh, especially when you look back to our time together, first working with each other uh, at the consortium, uh, Canada's Olympic Broadcast Media Consortium, to be more specific, and uh, how uh, we were able to uh, work together on on two of the biggest Olympic projects in uh, in recent history. And uh, you know, since then, uh, thrilled that we've been able to keep our uh, working relationship and personal relationship intact, and uh, thrilled to be here as a guest of yours uh, on this new project of, uh, of yours as well. Well, excited to have you. I, I know I've learned so much from you over the years. And, and part of that, as we were joking about just a little while ago, is that because we spent so much time together and kind of gone to battle a little bit together, uh, not the same as war, not the same as competing on the field of play of the great athletes that we had the chance of covering. But the two of us, I know we can talk literally for days. So because we're trying to keep the audience engaged during this podcast, you know, we're, I'm, I'm going to control it a little bit. We're going we're to focus maybe not so much on the actual story of your career and its progression, but, but moments, moments throughout that career where you might've been a witness to history. You might've been creating history um, all the while, you know, making it, making a difference, uh, at least from my perspective, what, from what I've been able to see from your career over the years. So to get started and we're going to kind of go back to what I have researched as the beginning of your career. You know, you spent some time down in Florida, uh, mm-hmm. with the Orlando Magic, and and I, I think I have this right. We're talking about, you know, Shaq, Penny, Horace Grant, kind of post-Bulls. Um, and and as I've been watching over the last few weeks, and I finally wrapped it up, watching The Last Dance, um, that amazing, amazing feature, uh, been reliving those moments that you know, I had forgotten about. I'm sure many people had forgotten about how, you know, the Magic just couldn't get by the Bulls. Similar how previous to that, you know, the Bulls, you know, couldn't get by the Pistons, as an example. But I wanted to hear kind of your perspective of that. I know you weren't on the basketball side at that point. You were so early on in your career. But, but you, were, you were in that mix in Orlando at that time when I think maybe it was the second year that the, uh, the Magic didn't get by the Bulls. But tell us a little bit about what that was like. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it forward into, into something a little more clear and present in, in the Toronto sports scene. But first, I wanted you to go back to kind of the beginning. Uh, well, yeah, that's <clears throat> truthfully where you know the career started was uh, was as as an intern with the Orlando Magic, and it was in their 1996 season. Um, the, the 
1995-96 season, but more specifically, I joined in January of 1996. And so I was there for the second half of that regular season and into that spring and playoff run of the Magic. Um, and uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It was it was Shaq's last year, Penny Hardaway, Nick Anderson, Dennis Scott, Horace Grant, Brian Hill was the coach. Um, they were... Um, they were one of the top teams in the NBA, certainly one of the top teams in the Eastern Conference. They had just been to the NBA Finals the year before against the Houston Rockets and, and, and lost. Um, but the Magic uh, was uh, was was seen as um, uh, as a perennial contender with that franchise and the roster that it had. Um, and uh, you know, keeping in mind that in Orlando, outside of Disney World, the Magic were it. It was uh, it was the biggest show in town and uh, to suddenly uh, be thrust at center stage in the Eastern Conference Finals against, you know, the uh, prominent Chicago Bulls of the Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman era. All that was uh, well showcased in the last dance uh, was was something else. And, um, you know, the fact that uh, the Magic and the Bulls uh, would go toe to toe like that. It was, uh, there was no other place to be in Orlando at that time, believe me. And it was the who's who of the sporting world, celebrities uh, in the entertainment industry, everyone was wanting to be um, at, uh, at the arena, the Orlando arena to, uh, to take in that action. So it sounds very similar to an experience we've had up here you know, in Toronto over the last few years. Things that we've seen in LA and New York, you know, over the years. So you're, you're in Orlando, and then I guess you get you get a chance for a permanent opportunity, a little closer to home, and and maybe we'll we'll just deal with the geography now for people's reference. So, so you live in Toronto. You, you've made a, a family and a career in Toronto, but you're not you're not from Toronto. You're from La Belle Provence, mm-hmm. as I recall, yeah. and uh, and you made your way from basically Quebec to to Florida and then to Toronto. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you know, how did you how did you end up landing at at that point, it was a very young Raptors team. They were only a handful of years in, into existence when, when you arrived. Yeah, as a matter of fact, when I arrived, it was the off season. It was August of 1996. So I had wrapped up my internship with the Magic. Um, and uh, the, the visa, the, the, the permit that I was on to actually be down in the States uh, working with the Magic uh, was soon to be expired and uh, looking for my first step uh, into a regular full-time job. And uh, <clears throat> the uh, Toronto Raptors had just wrapped up their inaugural season, which was the 95-96 season. And uh, there was an opening in their game operations and game presentation in arena experience uh, division. And um, as a result uh, of my time in Orlando, uh, I was able to uh, land an interview with the, uh, with the Raptors um, in the uh, summer of 96 and uh, was uh, fortunate enough to get hired and, and uh, started with the team um, in August of 96, just before the start of their, their second season in the NBA. And we're going to come back to kind of that, your role there at the time because your career has certainly evolved in a whole other direction you know, over the course of the last 20 plus years. Uh, but so before we, before we go into that, let's, I want to fast forward just a tiny bit, you know, Vince Carter's here, the love affair with the Raptors is beginning for, for us here in Toronto, if not across Canada. I know we still had the franchise in Vancouver at that point. Uh, but that Raptors team in 2001, you know, that, that, that was the team that, you know, I'd say our generation, you were, you were in the bubble at that point. I, w- I was a spectator. Uh, but that, that was the team that really 
we were really smitten with and and captivated. Not a country quite at that point, but certainly we began to notice. So they so they go in, they go into the playoffs, and they run into this guy called the Answer, if I have it correctly. And and the series the series is is unbelievably contested. You know, back and forth. I believe it went it went seven, and there were at least three games where whether it was Carter or Allen Iverson had over 50 points. So what, what do you remember being in the bubble, probably at every game, at least every home game, but you might've gone on the road. You'll tell, tell us about that. What was it like back then when, you know, basketball, certainly in this part of the country, you know, in, in, um, in Southwestern Ontario, we always, we always liked basketball proximity to the U S uh, college always was something that college hoops, the NCAA tournament was something that we, we loved here, but you know, the country itself, it wasn't, it wasn't an, enraptured in, in basketball the way that it is today. But what was it like back then about 20 years ago when the Raptors are probably on the verge of, you know, maybe not making the final, but certainly going to the Eastern final and competing. Yeah, it was, um, it was nothing short of, of, of magical, spectacular. And, 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 and in a way it did captivate an entire nation. We weren't, uh, I think we were still sort of finding our ways and keep in mind that, you know, you, you reference Vince Carter and his arrival in Toronto and, and, and what it meant, what it meant to the franchise, what it meant to the legitimacy of basketball in Toronto and, and in Canada, for that matter. Um, he was, uh, you know, and, and no disrespect to any of the players that came before him. Damon Stoudemire was rookie of the year uh, in that inaugural season. Uh, but that for the better part of that first chunk that first chapter of the Raptors era it was a lot of journeymen and a lot of cast-offs and uh, as a result you had guys that um, you know often expressed their desire to to want to go and play elsewhere and then Vince arrived and um, it didn't take long for him to suddenly um, showcase his athleticism um, this incredible aerial uh, play that, uh, of course, generated uh, natural comparisons to Michael Jordan, Dominique Wilkins, and so forth. Um, it, uh, you know, it's funny we've we've just come off of a project at Sportsnet that recognized Vince's career, and so it's uh, it's somewhat top of mind given the fact that you know he plays 22 seasons in the NBA. But I look back at when it started and the privilege of having a front row seat to all of this when it all began, um, and. Uh, you know, to bring it to the playoffs that you reference, round two of the Eastern Conference uh, uh, postseason against Philadelphia. Yeah, it goes to game seven. And you're absolutely right. There was some absolutely terrific toe-to-toe superstars from both teams and Allen Iverson and Vince Carter uh, putting their teams on their backs and, and getting it to a game seven. And um, as I'm sure many Raptors fans will recall, it comes down to the shot. Uh, and it's the shot that doesn't go in and it forever defines the Raptors franchise. And in many ways, uh, uh, it, it, it kind of lingered with fans and, um, I won't get into all the specifics of what transpired earlier that day, but people will also recall that Vince had a personal choice and decision to attend his graduation at the university of North Carolina. And what a story it would have been had he been able to walk across the stage, get his diploma. And then later that same day, come back and get the game-winning shot to send the Raptors to the conference final. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Um, but on the coattails of that, it it felt like you know, much like I had just described the magic earlier in this conversation, the Raptors were now contenders. They were legit contenders. It sure felt that way. 
Um, and the nucleus of the team led by Vince was something that not only for those working with the Raptors at the time, but for fans, again, across the city, across the province and across the country, it felt like, hey, we've arrived. We are recognized. Vince has helped put us on the map. Um, let's not overlook also, too, what transpired at the NBA dunk contest in 2000 when Vince and Vince Sanity itself exploded on the scene. So all of that led up to that moment uh in the uh in the in the series against um the 76ers it was just not meant to be and uh not I, yet not yet i mean we, we got rewarded with a shot a few years later or like a decade and a half later and let's kind of move forward a little bit into that era so so now you're you're not working for the raptors anymore the mlse you're you're at sportsnet you're you're entrenched in this amazing role where you where you're there to basically create the storylines that are that tell that tell more of a long tail journey of of athletes of of heroics you'll obviously do a better job explaining this than i will but i want to i want to take us still with the theme of basketball and the raptors you know take us to not the championship season which has been very well documented but the three seasons before then and you're you're at sportsnet uh, you're sharing the rights, you know, with TSN here. So you you have your fair share of broadcast as it relates to the Raptors, and and the Raptors can just not get by LeBron, year after year, different rounds, Eastern Conference Final, second round. I mean, it keeps happening. So as as a storyteller, which is which is now your role, you know, what is, what is that like? As like you you're there to capture the imagination of the audience, really deliver hope. In many cases, um, there's the live broadcast, which is that that beachhead that we're all looking for to make sure that we're tuned in and watching. Um, but what's going through your head uh, as you're thinking about how am I going to cover this team, especially when you get into maybe the 2017-18 season, when it's like you know hope is lost. I, I remember as a fan at that point thinking, what's the point of the regular season? What's the point being ranked at the top of your conference when the playoffs determine everything? And we learned a little bit about this from the last dance, specifically Jordan's you know, second tour in the NBA, how it was really just about the playoffs and conditioning and all those things. But as a storyteller, talk to us about the storylines that you recall at that point to try and convey some sense of hope to the fan base so they tune in to watch. And that the Raptors may compete, may get by this, you know, compare them to MJ. We, we might a little later in the, in the conversation, but um, certainly LeBron is, is, you know, the current era, the, uh, the most dominant player we've seen. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you look at LeBron, you look at the likes of Michael Jordan. I mean, these are once in a generation super talents. I mean, they are, uh, you know, etched into the history of the NBA, part of the Mount Rushmore of greats that have played in the NBA for sure. Um, but when you look at, um, you know, the angles uh, one would take to try and promote uh, the, the Raptors and, and, and the reason to tune in, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Slivs. It, it is about hope. And it's funny because I come back to a quote that was shared uh, with me when, when I was working at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. And although I know your question is related to basketball, I'm going to cite a hockey example. And the quote came from um, Ken Dryden when he was president of uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I remember him asking me the question point blank in a meeting that we had one day. And he says, what business are we in? And I went the obvious route and said, well, we're in the sports and entertainment business. And he said, not quite. 
And it took me by surprise. And I thought, okay, well, what philosophy is he about to share with me here? And he says, yeah, he says on the surface, we're in the sports and entertainment business, but he said, we are truly in the business of selling hope. And it's that belief that you want to be there in the moment to witness something special. You hope to be there in the moment of witnessing something special, something historical, something meaningful, that moment in time that you can forever stay and share with your friends, your family, your next of kin. Um, it is leaving that lasting memory and that lasting experience in most of the stories that we try to produce that stays with the view, the viewer long after being told. And so with that, that was always the focus for us of, you know, don't lose hope. This is the year. This is the team. Um, you know, that was DeMar DeRozan at that time. And Kyle Lowry was the one-two punch. Um, and the belief and the feeling and the sentiment was, you know, we could, or well, we I wasn't with the Raptors, but we were broadcasting the Raptors, that the Raptors um, had the talent and the skill uh, and certainly had proven their dominance in the Eastern Conference to to get by um, and, and, and slay the giant. Um, you know, sometimes you would like to think you know how the story ends and other times the story ends a little differently. Um, that's the beauty of sport. You can start the story, but then ultimately the story has its own distinct ending based on the outcome. Um, and uh, in that instance, yeah, it, um, you know, LeBron proved his dominance, uh, showcased why he is one of the all-time greats. Um, you know, I thought that, you know, some people referring to the city of Toronto as LeBronto was was a little bit too much. But uh, nonetheless, uh, he had our number. Uh, he had Toronto's number. And, uh, you know, one thing that we learned from the last dance and certainly with Michael Jordan's dominance and success, the physical skills were were there that there was no question. Right. He could. Physically dominate a game and take over a game individually, but I think the one part that we learned in the last dance that LeBron also possesses still now as a member of the Lakers is there's a mental game to his uh, repertoire that is so incredibly dominating and strong and um, whenever you're able to cast even an ounce of doubt in your comp a competitor's mindset that says, oh boy, here we go again, you've got the edge. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's kind of what that Raptors team discovered that, you know, going up against, um, you know, going up against one of the, one of the all-time legends in the game. Well, thank goodness he chose to, uh, he chose the beach out in uh, California and the Raptors, uh, had a clearer path to the, to the final, but I want to stick with, that was an amazing quote that you shared with us or, or moment you had with, with Ken Dryden, uh, a Canadian hockey legend. The the part I want to go with now, and, and this is a little tougher, and I, I know we didn't necessarily prepare for this, and um, we're just on the cusp of live sports starting up. Uh, I watched last night a few minutes of the replay of the uh, the Blue Jays inter-squad game uh, on Sportsnet, and it, it was interesting. It was uh, I'm not going to go into depths of how I felt about it, because I really want to hear the way you look at, not that moment, not that not that game last night, which was, which was great to see, by the way, it, it, there was relief. I don't, but as you look at the NHL season, the NBA season, major league baseball, MLS is, is back a little bit. We're still trying to understand what, what that tournament actually means, but as the storyteller, as the broadcaster, maybe you can, you can help us with some, some of the planning that, that you're doing now 
so that um, the fans will be will be ready to embrace live sports. And I, I don't need you to make this political or health related, just about your job um, in the entertainment and, and deliverer of hope business. Well, I mean, perhaps it's it's best to start with the obvious, which is you know, the world in which we all live uh, has, has changed dramatically in the last four months. And yeah, I won't make it about um, politics, um, injustices or um, health and pandemics. Um, but the one thing that we, we've often had in the past when worldwide tragedies have hit is we've had sports to kind of lean on as a bit of an outlet, uh, a chance to offer a bit of a reprieve from the day-to-day troubles, struggles, challenges that we face. You know, sports um, in its own distinct way has a way of unifying uh, all of us, um, regardless of gender, culture, background, ethnicity. Um, it's, it's, it's one rallying point. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a chance to um, unify um the mass, uh, the mass is a bigger group for sure. And that's more or less as we start to look at the stories and consider the stories that uh, will bring us back. I mean, for sure, fans watching are thrilled at being able to see this young and talented Blue Jays team um, contend in what was going to be an interesting condensed 60 game season. They're thrilled to see the chance and opportunity of whether or not the Raptors can defend their title. I come back to that essence of, of hope, that chance to witness history, the chance to exhale and the chance to say, hey, whew, you know, sports is back. But it, it, it at least gives us perhaps one step closer to uh, a sense of normalcy uh, or a little bit more normalcy and a, and a sense of what what uh, what we can return to in terms of uh, an entertainment outlet and um you know, we want to try and touch on on that aspect of it all that, um, uh, you know, sports is back and it is meant to be a, a unifier um, and also to, to to highlight some of the um, inspirational stories that uh, some of which might be well known uh, and other stories that perhaps are not as well known uh, and draw attention to those uh, mix up the variety in terms of our editorial that I, uh, again, the stories are never meant to overshadow the live action. It's always meant to be a complement to the live action. And that's the approach we're taking here as well. Well, I'm, I am excited for, for the return of sport. It, 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 there is this warming up period, I'll call it where I'm comfortable watching um but as long as you know as long as everyone participating whether it's the players the officials the broadcasters as we're hearing about are all safe um and we're and we're trying to contain this thing um then 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 i support it other than that i hope it, i want everyone to be safe but looking at that experience for a moment of that in-stadium experience and and i've been following a lot about the technology that whether it's the you know the epl who's been really at the leading edge of this uh, and other soccer leagues overseas that have been trying to bring you know, a sense of, let's call it home field, home court, home ice advantage uh, in a spectatorless stadium, which is what we should expect for the foreseeable future. But that fan experience, you, that was your job, you know, wind the clock back. No, not, you, you, you were part of, I'm sure, inventing that uh, for, for the Raptors in, in those days for many years. You were there for almost, almost 10 years, I believe. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that experience that you were part of shaping and then delivering uh, 
um, you know, what it was like back then. And then we'll, we'll take a look a little bit more now because things have certainly changed now. But I, I want to just establish kind of a foundation uh, and maybe the Raptors' position, or MLSE for that matter, their position in that in-stadium fan experience. Uh, because I know that some of my travels and, and people that I've spoken with, I know that the, the MLSE, that organization, has actually uh, received many accolades for what they've done inside of uh, inside of that building. Yeah, well, I mean, at the very, very beginning of, um, of my my time and tenure with with the Raptors, it still wasn't MLSE yet. It was uh, its own organization. And um, keep in mind, those games were still being played because Scotiabank Arena, which prior to that was, of course, Eric Canada Centre, hadn't even been constructed yet. So we were playing games out of uh, a few different venues uh, in the early portion of my career with the Raptors. We were playing games out of Skydome. It wasn't Rogers Centre yet. Uh, we would play some games out of Maple Leaf Gardens. I remember on Boxing Day in the 96-97 season going to play a game in Cops Coliseum. So it's tough to have a home court advantage, so to speak, when you've got a few different courts to call home. And um, all that being said, the majority of the games were played out of out of Skydome, but we were a tenant in that building. Um, and, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's, it's a unique configuration when you try to fit a basketball court within a baseball or football stadium the size of the size of the dome. Um, but all the more reason to try and create that unique fan experience back then. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, um, those were some tough years for the team and the, the, the Raptors teams on the court. Um, you know, uh, there were certainly more losses than wins. Um, there were some memorable victories, though, don't get me wrong, some some big wins against the Bulls and uh, other notable teams along the way. And, and in fact, that first uh, game of the 96-97 um, season, the NBA celebrated its 50th anniversary and uh, did so uh, with, uh, with the Raptors. Uh, so there were some highlights for sure. But it was really trying to build up that in-game experience, that entertainment um, overload, if you will. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's come a long way. But back then it was um, the music, you know, keeping in mind that while game action is going on, you're actually allowed to play music in arena, unlike, you know, most other uh, most other sports. Um the uh, player introductions uh, was unique in its own way, trying to uh, carve out uh, just that special little moment of 60 seconds or less uh, as you introduce your starting five. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't actually acknowledge, um, in my humble opinion, uh, the best mascot in pro sports, the Raptor himself. Uh, and I'm not kidding when I tell you that some people would actually focus their attention on him throughout the game instead of the action on the court because he is uh, and still is uh, you know exceptional in his role um, so that in-game experience that overload that ability to draw in the fans and um, 
you know, escape, uh, as I've said before, escape that the realities of day-to-day life for a two and a half to three hour experience is, was, was what it was all about. And early on in that time, um, basketball was so new in the city and it was familiar perhaps with a younger audience, but they weren't in a position to actually buy the tickets. They had to sell and convince their parents that it was worth going to the games. And, you know, you wanted to make it a, a fun, entertaining, engaging and family friendly uh, experience as well, uh, coupled with the videos on the jumbotron and and and, and the music um, uh, showcase as well too. Halftime entertainment, you bring in variety acts, circus acts, and performers, and it was it was almost like this 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 crazy variety act show just unfolded right in the middle of a basketball game. So that was the early portion to the Raptors uh, and NBA entertainment experience. You know, the evolution since then, as you said, Slivs, is, is, is really focused on uh, the technology, uh, the ability to go beyond just the arena. Um, you know, you're looking at, at, at touch points now with fans from the moment they buy their tickets, the ability through technology to connect and find out more personal information and personal uh, points of experience for the, for the fan uh, from the moment they've either downloaded their tickets or acquired their tickets through their mobile device to the moment they leave their driveway, um, the experience that they have getting from their home to the arena. Uh, and then, of course, once they're in the friendly confines of their home arena, it's the pregame experience, the in-game experience, uh, and perhaps most importantly of all, uh, you know, as you build up customer uh, loyalty is is that post game experience as well. But I but I bring it back to again another quote that I uh, I love to share, and it, this one was also from MLSC, and it was from Richard Petty, the president of MLSC at the time. And you know, at the end of the day, everyone wants to associate themselves with a winner as well too. And it's funny how um, when teams are winning, the hot dogs taste better, the beers taste colder, and the washroom lines seem shorter. And I've always had that one stick with me as well, too, that, you know, you can have all the bells and whistles, but at the end of the day, a winning product goes a long way as well. Well, you, my friend, are you are a marketer, you are a storyteller at heart. It's uh, it's amazing to to listen to you put it, string these words together. You, You got me excited, by the way. You got me visualizing myself, whether I'm watching or attending a game, hopefully in the in the years to come. Uh, you, you know how to tell a story. So I want to I wanna focus on some other stories for, for a little bit, uh, respecting the, the duration of our conversation today for our listeners. Um, and let's talk about the Olympics. That, that's where you and I met. That's where uh, you know, Alon Markovic uh, had, had the vision to call upon two, two friends, really, um, to, uh, to come help him out and be part of something that was, that was bigger than all of us. And uh, and you and I were kind of those first those first hires in the, in that in that digital and research department, and we became fast friends. Um, but as as the world evolved and your role evolved, you you ended up as I as I saw it from the office next to you. So I had the office next to MLB for probably about three or five years. I think I moved around a bit at the beginning, and we moved locations a couple times. But having the office next to you. You know, I saw talent after talent after legend after award winner, you know, marching down that hall right into your office. And uh, and if you can maybe highlight a few of those people who I'm sure you have very strong bonds with, um, you know, your journey with them, kind of the role that you played. Um, you can touch on the, 
you know, 99% right <laughs> is a hundred percent wrong, which is something that we've come to know and love and understand. Um, and then maybe, maybe take us toward you know, the, kind of the crowning achievement and, and the role that you played with um, B dubs as we call him, but the Canadian Brian Williams, uh, the, the, uh, the Olympic face for, for most Canadians of many generations. Take, a, take us back to that role and, and how you, from behind the scenes really, which is the heart of this, this podcast, is really telling the stories from behind the scenes. You know, the, role, the role that you played and, uh, and how that made a difference for the coverage that we saw out of CTV and Rogers, you know, versus you know, what, what the great broadcasters at CBC, just what I felt couldn't really accomplish up until that point. Um, well, yeah, I mean, asking to, to roll it back to uh, 2008 when, when we joined the consortium, um, those were, you know, it was a four-year run for the Vancouver Olympics in 2010 and the London Olympics in 2012. It was a four-year run that was just exceptional. Um, some of the best memories I've had uh, personally and professionally. Um, and, um, yeah, the role itself was uh, was overseeing the editorial research and planning uh, for the consortium, supporting uh, the various platforms. And keep in mind, there weren't as many platforms then as there are now, but nonetheless, supporting the uh, the broadcast efforts in terms of um, the uh, the athlete profiles, uh, the athlete features and vignettes, the complementary programming that would go into um the, uh, the the planning around all of the live events that were being held during the Olympics. And, you know, keep in mind, my, my takeaway in all of this was, um, you know, you go into an Olympic project and it's amazing how people say, oh yeah, I know, I, I know the Olympics, I know the Olympics, but when you boil it down, you know, it's... It, the athletes that compete don't always get the same kind of attention and certainly don't get always the same kind of credit that they justly deserve. They do within their immediate sports federations and sports circles. But our goal in all of this was to try and make Canadians know one year out from the games, at least for the Vancouver games, who the athletes were, why they mattered and why you needed to start following them now so that by the time we got to Vancouver, they were household names. You knew who you were cheering for and you wanted to get behind them. A proud, unifying moment for a Canadian uh, audience that wanted to get behind their athletes and cheer them on. And keep in mind, it was this perfect um, uh, crossover of Olympics on home soil for Canadians, coupled with this initiative called Own the Podium. The goal was really to go in there and... Um, offer a little bit of swagger that perhaps Canadians don't like to often showcase, but it was okay in this instance to say, Hey, you know what? We're good enough to compete with the world's best and not just good enough to compete, but beat the world's best. And, you know, we were able to capture this perfect storm where um, we had the, the good fortune of being able to meet up with these athletes ahead of time, start to tell their stories. Um, and then, uh, sprinkle their stories across this this uh, incredible matrix of, of landing spots and platforms on the CTV uh, platform um, and and on the Rogers platform outside of sports as well too. The chance to find human interest stories and personal points of interest of the athletes that made sense to land in other areas like 
much music or Canada AM or whatever other um, uh, appropriate uh, network or channel or outlet uh, uh, that uh, that offered a, a, a common and, and, and logical uh, connection point. And so with that, the role that I oversaw was um, to try and bring together this 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 collation of of athlete information background uh information facts and figures anecdotes historical references essentially to boil it all down it was olympics 101 and uh you reference the uh number of different on-air personalities who would uh, venture down to my office and we would engage in uh, a year's worth of tutorials uh, a year's worth of preparation uh, you can't just show up on the eve of the Olympics and expect everything's going to rattle off uh, out of your mouth perfectly. And so, you know, credit goes to, you know, the talents like Brian Williams, like James Duthie, like Lisa LaFlamme, Jennifer Hedger, um, and, you know, many others um, who put in the work. Uh, they put in the effort. They did a lot of the heavy lifting to prepare themselves so that when we got to the Vancouver Olympics, it, it it was it was like the perfect fit um, and there was a level of confidence and comfort knowing that by doing the homework ahead of time we were ready we were ready both on air and we were ready behind the scenes as well and um, you know again I, I give a lot of credit to Alon who you've mentioned um, you know he uh, he fought for uh, for this editorial research role. Um, and it's um, a model and a template that uh, I know in his past travels and uh, and, and roles that uh, he brought forward, and um, it uh, you know it it, it it served as a a valuable resource for uh, the on-air talent to lean on. Um, and it's not to take anything away from the skills and talents of any of the on-air personalities. They are gifted in front of the camera, and that's why they do what they do so well. Um, but we were there as uh, as a quality control, a safety check, um, maybe a bit of a security blanket uh, to confirm uh, to be 100% sure. And as you noted, you know, 99% right is still 100% wrong. Um, and with the Olympics, there's a lot of a lot of facts and figures that are perhaps not as commonly known as other mainstream sports. Um, but it doesn't mean you can you know skim the surface. You want to make sure that you've still got it accurate. And, and precise uh, handles on all of this information. And we owed it to the athletes. We owed it to the athletes. We owed it to the Olympic movement. Um, you know, they had opened up to us their personal stories, as I said, a year out. Um, and uh, it was a perfect partnership with the COC in that regard. And, uh, and we owed it to the athletes because this was their time to shine on a national stage that ultimately was an international stage. And they delivered to and, you know, it comes right down to the very last second of the Olympics on that last Sunday uh, when uh, when a certain Sid Crosby pockets the overtime winner. And uh, it was the perfect punctuation to 17 days of storytelling that will forever, ever be etched in my memory. Yeah, well, well said. And, uh, you know, I think the other part, and I'll, I'm going to use an acronym, which you probably haven't heard in a long time, but I remember cord which was this little technology thing that i wear where mark and i really crossed over uh with our friends from uh, delta tray uh to build this research database which uh was an immense effort and was a great repository and when it came time for the the actual games um 
Well, it ended up being a binder. <laughs> Actually, many, many binders, if I remember this correctly. Uh, but over those 17 days, and it's probably a little more than 17 days because um, probably in advance of that, you had all this time with Brian. Uh, on, but you were on set with Brian and, and Paul. Uh, I don't know if it was 100% of the time Brian was on air, you and Paul were both there. Um, but tell us a little bit about working with, you know, a, a legend, a legend in Canadian sports broadcasting. And, um, and without revealing any secrets that Brian would not like to share, um, talk a little bit about, about the person who, who is this person, who is this broadcaster that we all admire so much. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's truthfully not enough positive adjectives to describe uh, Brian. Um, he is, uh, he's the dean of Olympics in this country. He is a face that you knew as an athlete, if you were sitting across from Brian Williams, you had succeeded in your field of competition. Um, he, uh, in many ways was, uh, and still is, you know, a, a father figure in the world of, of Olympic sports. Um, and, uh, and someone who, uh, you know, I proudly consider a friend, uh, a mentor, uh, someone who, um, was, uh, was open-minded enough to, to accept me and, and, and accept the, the process and workflow that, uh, that, uh, we had implemented. Um, it was, um, just a terrific honor to, to work with, with a legend, uh, like Brian and, um, yeah, we were in studio. Uh, I mean, he was also part of some of the tutorials leading up to, uh, the Olympic games. And certainly we had many conversations leading up to our arrival in Vancouver, but once the games got going, um, he was the host of the Olympic primetime show and, uh, I was, um, I was just off camera, uh, and I was there to, uh, to lend that editorial research support, um, to, um, ensure that his scripts were properly vetted, that they were accurate. Um, and most importantly, as I've said all along, the role is, is not to make the on-air talent look good. That's the role of wardrobe, makeup and, 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 and what forth, uh, and so forth. But, um, I was there to try and help them sound good, um, to make sure that what we were seeing was again concise, accurate, um, and uh, and detailed enough that the viewer at home uh, was aware of what was going on and and why it was relevant. Um, and you know, again, I can't I can't go in and uh, necessarily uh, uh, you know suggest that um, you know. I'm going to give Brian all the information. I mean, he's the master storyteller himself, given the number of Olympics that he had been part of prior to Vancouver. Um, and, um, but it was a, it was a, a, a perfect compliment um, in the sense that, um, you know, while we would throw to a live event, uh, we would be preparing Brian uh, for when we would be coming back to studio um, with whatever information that he needed, whether it was a recap of the day, uh, a look ahead to what tomorrow would have to offer, uh, a summary of uh, an athlete's achievement or accomplishment throughout that day and, and what it meant in the, the history uh, uh, record books, um, or for that matter, just confirming a hometown. And, and again, as I said before, you knew you had arrived, you knew it, you had succeeded when Brian Williams is able to mention your name and your hometown proudly on an Olympic broadcast like that and understanding the joy went from the studio in Vancouver right across the country to wherever that hometown happened to be. I mean, that's exhilarating. And that's, and that's, that's the, you know, the responsibility that, that 
in many senses, we all had, but from your vantage point, which was right behind the camera that was showcasing that message to Canadians. I mean, what an unbelievable seat you had to that, to that games. Now thinking about that role and, and now moving forward. So you, you finished up your tenure on the Olympics. Uh, the rights went back to CBC and that's where they have remained. And you end up at, at Sportsnet with a similar title, little tweak to it. Um, and you're in, you're in a different world. Sportsnet had not yet um, risen. Uh, it was still squarely in the number two position in terms of, I guess, average minute audience on a, on a monthly basis. Um, but now it is, I believe, you know, pre COVID anyway, was in the top position, NHL, a blue Jays team over the past few years with, uh, with, with great records and battles going back a few years ago. Anyway, you know, Sportsnet, Sportsnet had risen and talk a little bit about your role kind of and how it fits into this, this machine of, Live broadcast news. I'm not going to worry so much about multi-platform, but you know, if you think there is a very relevant point as it relates to to digital, I know the magazine is no more, so we, we won't cover that. But kind of talk about how how you fit in to, and I know you have a team. It's not just you. Um, how you fit in to uh, you know you're doing an Olympics every day, you know, 365 days a year. And what is, what is that like? How do you keep sane? Because you certainly can't be behind the camera every night uh, when, uh, when, when you're live from a control show or panel. Yeah, well, yeah, the role at Sportsnet is, um, is similar in nature to the Olympic role um, with, a, with a slight twist, as you said. Um, I'll start with the research role. And when I arrived at Sportsnet, um, the the mandate or the goal was to try and implement the same kind of discipline, the same kind of respect and the same kind of um, focus uh, in terms of accuracy and precision. And I remember selling uh, the powers that be at the time on the idea of a stats and information team, a research team. And uh, if I look at some of the other big players in the broadcast world, like ESPN, for example, I saw their model and it was 150 plus people that work on their editorial research team to ensure that, again, stats, facts, uh, information for on-air talent, producers, and any other kind of broadcast personnel are at their fingertips in the fastest, most reliable manner. So with that as a bit of a, a, a guiding principle and what I had uh, developed at the Olympics with the consortium, uh, I, I went into pitch mode on the idea that we needed that for Sportsnet. And although it's not 150 plus people, we do have an extremely talented team of eight um, editorial coordinators. And they are, they are the editorial lifeline to the news programs, um, the live production uh, whether it's for any of our sports properties, our news programs, a variety uh, of, of editorial shows, like Tim and Sid. Uh, this is a group that, um, again, follows the mantra of 99% right is 100, uh, being 99% right is 100% wrong. Um, no one's perfect in this world, but they're paid to be as close to perfect as possible. Uh, and I know that sounds kind of intense and uh, perhaps unattainable, but this is a group that, um, 
fully understands and appreciates that one's reputation is made in years, but lost in seconds. And uh, they do uh, just an exceptional job at uh, uh, not only vetting scripts, not only um, preparing our, our production personnel and editorial personnel uh, with stats, packs, and information, uh, but they are on call whenever we're live for whatever sporting event. And they're Truly, we just had a, a team meeting yesterday to discuss all this. They will be put to the test in the next few weeks when you've got baseball, basketball, and hockey all coming back, uh, crossing over at the same time. So that's one part of the, the portfolio, the stats and information team. And the other part of the portfolio is um, if the stats and information team tell the stories through numbers uh, and, 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 and statistical anecdotes, um, we look to tell the stories on the other side of the portfolio in a more traditional sense with player profiles, um, feature segments, uh, relevant storylines that have a tie to the live game you're about to see or witness um, on, uh, on our network. And the idea there is, again, as I've said before, not to overshadow the live event. We truly understand people are tuning in to watch the live event. But if we can play a part in augmenting your experience, enlightening you just a little bit, raising your sports IQ, just that extra little bit in terms of um, uh, information about the player or players you're about to see, the coach or coaching staff that uh, might play a part in the game uh, or whatever relevant storyline there might be then we've done our job. And as I said before, the goal in whatever story we tell is always to try and make sure that once it's told, it stays with the viewer long after being told. We're not, we're not investigative reporters. Um, you know, the role doesn't call for that for the most part. It's really trying to be um, in a position to showcase um, sides to the athletes that you may not already know. Um, and or for that matter, if you know the story, then our objective is to try and tell that story from an angle you've not seen it told before. So with that, there is um, a series of uh, opportunities throughout the year where uh, our team of feature producers and we have a team of eight feature producers um, will uh, look to be assigned a variety of different stories that serve Hockey Night in Canada, that serve hometown hockey, that serve Wednesday Night Scotia Bank hockey as part of our national hockey package. Uh, we'll serve all of our regional broadcasts as well, too. Uh, we'll serve Blue Jays Central. We'll serve our Raptors coverage. Um, we touch basically the key sports properties at Sportsnet uh, in a storytelling manner. And um, again, it's, it's meant to be more than just the... Um, scorecard or box score uh it's it's meant to go a whole lot deeper than that in terms of personal relationships um and and and, and leveraging that opportunity to gain the access and learn that much more about the athlete well you know if, if the live production and the news folks are really the the engine kind of that that drives the business um it sounds like your group is really the spark plug in there that, 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 that ignites that engine that gives them fodder to create memories. It's been amazing. It's been amazing hearing about that. I, I got to witness it, uh, at least it happening around me, but I was busy with my own, you know, stack of paper at the time and, uh, didn't get to really appreciate it the way you've described it here for me today. 
what I'd like to do before uh, we close things off for the day, there's, there's a few questions that we like to ask um, every guest. And uh, MLB is not prepared for these questions. So I am always anxiously awaiting to hear what he has to say. So if you had to pick one moment in your career that's most memorable, what, what would it be? Oh, um, well, I'll, uh, if you can stick with me on this one, um, to bring it all the way back to the very beginning, you were talking about the, uh, the internship in Orlando and, um, before, before being able to take off to Orlando, there were a series of, uh, immigration issues and challenges. I referenced the visa and that was the quick and easy way of saying that we were allowed into the country. Now, keep in mind, this is predating September 11th. Um, so, uh, not to say that it was any easier, it was still tricky to try and get in. Um, but there was, uh, legal immigration requirements. The Magic were willing to accept a Canadian to come in and work with them uh, as part of their internship program. I was the only Canadian in the program at that time. Um, but I remember my point of entry, and at the time, my parents, and I just graduated from university, so all of my belongings are with my folks. And yes, I grew up in Montreal, as you had said before, but my parents were living in Calgary at the time. And so as I was trying to get my belongings that I would need to go and spend my nine month internship in Florida, I was actually flying to or flying to Florida from the Calgary International Airport. And there's two thoughts that jump out to mind. One was when we left Calgary that day, it was minus 42. It was late December 2000 uh, or at 1995, excuse me, late December 1995. And um, I just remember thinking, my goodness, it is as cold as can be. And when I looked at the other end in Florida, it was plus 27. So that jumps out at me. But the one thing I remember is being at the airport. And as I was going through customs and immigration, I got pulled aside. And I got pulled into an interrogation room where the head of immigration for the Calgary International Airport was there to grill me. And... Uh, his name, uh, and honestly, I have not kept in touch with the gentleman, but I recall his name because sports fans and baseball fans in particular will understand this one. George Brett was his name. And he pulls me into the interrogation room and I have sweated before and been nervous before, but never quite like this because I was on the cusp of seeing my career start. This was it. This was the big break I had wanted the chance to go and work for a professional sports franchise and get my foot in the door and what stood between me and actually getting on a plane to get to Orlando was George Brett. And I remember sitting there listening to him interrogate me with questions of how are you going to support yourself? Where are you going to live? What are you going to do? How did this come about? Why did they pick you? How is it that? And then the questions start, started repeating themselves. And all the while, I'm looking at the clock over his shoulder in this interrogation room, and I'm thinking, my flight's about to leave in about 10 minutes. And if I don't make this flight, what a way to start my internship if I'm not arriving on the first day. And anyway, after being drilled left, right, and center, uh, George Brett looks at me and pulls out this great big ink pad and a stamp to stamp my passport and the paperwork, slides the paperwork across the table and says, 
have fun. <laughs> and there was no pine tar involved in that incident at all. No pine tar whatsoever. And I just remember thanking him and grabbing the paperwork and then racing through the airport and literally hearing my name on the intercom system saying, passenger Mark LeBlanc, calling paging passenger Mark LeBlanc as the gate was about to close. And I don't know for anyone who's been late for a flight, but when you get on a flight and everyone's looking at you and you are disheveled and completely unsettled, I just remember sinking into my chair, clipping up my seatbelt and thinking, here we go. And well, what a run it's been. I can imagine the heart racing. And, and I'm sure that most of the people on that plane were looking at you funny because they thought they heard Matt LeBlanc. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time for that story. But we, uh, we do have time for a couple more questions here. Sorry. It's a good inside joke that we will not be telling on the Backstage Project podcast. So what advice do you have? And I know you've made the career of many fine folks. What advice do you have for someone who's looking uh, to get into the space? Um, I, I would say there is a fine balance in terms of being assertive and aggressive. And um, at times being too much over the top. And I would say, as you start to find your way into a career like this, if you're at the very beginning stages of it all, um, there's going to be a lot of no's. There's going to be a lot of doubts. Uh, I don't have the binder here to, uh, to show you slivs, but um, if I showed you, I've kept a binder from my time applying all the way back in the early nineties for roles in professional sports it's a binder of letters and I have probably been rejected in a variety of different ways, polite and less so from a few different franchises, sports uh, organizations and, 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 and clubs, both at the major and minor league level. But it was the magic that said yes. Um, and so I say, you know, patience is a prerequisite. Don't accept no for an answer. Uh, and while you might be doubting yourself in those moments, realize that each and every one of those moments of doubt are just building your character. And there will get to a point while you might doubt yourself, others are eventually going to see your potential and recognize the talent that's there. And that moment will come. Uh, it's just, you know, not everyone's going to have an immediate yes um, and so again, I just practice the, the, the need to be assertive, the need to be, um, aggressive, but not overly. So the need to be patient and the need to understand that you are your own brand. So why should somebody or some organization invest in you? What are your brand attributes? What are your brand qualities? What are your brand specialty points and have them ready at a moment's notice? Cause you never know when that chance to do that elevator pitch on yourself will come around that's that's great advice and and i and kind of paraphrasing a bit of it it's you got you got to ask um yeah. you, you can call it persistence as you did but you got you got to keep you got to keep pushing if it's something that you you want to achieve we're going to close off with just one final question and i think you might have answered it in your last answer but we'll try it anyway when you think back on your career 
which it's been amazing to learn more about the depths of some of those early moments that quite frankly, I, I didn't know until we chatted today. So that's why I love doing the podcast is I get to know friends even better. Um, but if you think back over your career, if you can quickly, and it's um, something that today, you know, is just ingrained in your DNA, the way that you view a topic, if you compare that to your past, you know, what is something that you wish you knew more in the early days of, of your career? Um, that is something that you, you know, swear by today, let's say. I would say, you know, when you're, when you're first starting off, you, you, you look at the industry that we're in, the sports industry, uh, sports and entertainment industry, and it's, it's, it seems immense. It seems vast. Um, and what I will say is, is that it gets a little bit smaller as your career progresses because you're able to make relationships, build your network, uh, develop partnerships that will only add to the base and to the foundation. And, you know, there was a message that I remember being shared, two messages. One was, there is no such thing as having too many friends. And, you know, I've had, I've shared that quote before and some people kind of roll their eyes, but you never know when you're going to need to lean on someone and vice versa when they're going to need to lean on you. Um, and in an industry like the sports entertainment industry, as vast as it seems, it's not that big, to be quite honest, uh, as you look at it. And so that ability to keep relationships going, keep contacts going, uh, foster and develop those relationships, uh, opportunities that may not be apparent in the moment, but might only appear years later. And it's because of relationships that you've been able to build that trust and good faith that you've been able to develop over the course of one's career. And the other thing is this, you know, I talk about 99% right is 100% wrong. The other quote that I often keep with me and, and not to keep citing quote after quote after quote, but uh, this is one that my dad taught me pretty on in life. And he said, it's okay to make mistakes. He said, that's why pencils come with erasers. And, you know, no one has the perfect answer. There is no clear cut blueprint to get from point A to point B. Often one's career path, yours lives, my own. There's no straight trajectory. You know, you're going to zig, you're going to zag, um, but eventually you'll find your, your spot. Um, and, you know, realizing that along the way, um, each and every learning moment uh, and each and every um, misstep happens for a reason uh and it just makes you better it makes you stronger and it makes you prepared for the next time and like i said if you have to use that eraser at the tip of your pencil that's okay too well that couldn't have been said better than you just said it for the audience that stayed that has stayed with us over the course of this hour or so we'll see how long it ends up being uh with uh, when andrew gets his cut at producing the final version of the podcast but for those who have stayed with us and listened, I mean, you, you know that MLB is, is a talent. He understands how to tell a story, how to position it, how to be memorable. Uh, it's been a real treat chatting with you about all kinds of things over the last little bit. Uh, the one quote I am disappointed that you didn't reference, or the one person and quote I am disappointed you, you didn't reference, was your doppelganger, Bob Costas. You know, for the, I know it's a podcast, but... <laughs> I've been staring, we're doing this over Zoom, I've been staring at, you know, the Bob Costas doppelganger for a long time, and, uh, and I don't, he's, 
MLB is not as well photographed as Bob, but uh, hopefully some of you will Google image search uh, Mark LeBlanc. And there are a few Mark LeBlancs, so make sure you put the word Sportsnet in there so you don't get the wrong Mark LeBlanc. Um, and he's not Matt LeBlanc, but he does have similar hair. Anyway, it's been a real treat to catch up. Uh, the next time, you know, we'll do it maybe on a patio as, uh, as we begin so. to get more comfortable with those sorts of things. And I hope, you know, Steph and the kids are, are well and, uh, and that, uh, you know, we get back to some sense of kind of comfortable normal soon enough. Um, listen, thank you. Thank you, uh, Slips for having me. Thank you, Andrew, for, uh, for your efforts behind the scenes there as well. And, um, a real pleasure, uh, look forward to doing it again with you soon and, uh, my best to, uh, to team silver as well. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.